I'm Richard Kiefer and we're today with Tim Head, the manager of the Boulder Municipal Airport. And Tim's here to talk about a variety of subjects, including the role of the airport in last September's flood and other emergency operations that have happened around Boulder County. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Richard. Can you give me just a little bit of a history of the airport? You, you know, I think a lot of people in Boulder probably don't even know we have an airport, <laughs> right? <laughs> or some people don't anyway. What's the story on Boulder Airport? This thing's been here for quite a while, right? It has, and I actually do get that question a lot because the people that are familiar with just commercial flights, of course, would not have ever come to the Boulder Airport for a commercial flight. Uh, they would have all gone to Denver International. Because there's no commercial service here at all? Correct. In fact, Denver International is the only airport in the whole Denver area. Even though we have about six or seven airports, Denver is the only one with commercial service. But Boulder Airport, it is a public airport, of course, but it, all the planes here are predominantly privately owned. Uh, we have flight schools and some different organizations that operate out of here. Back mm -hmm. in 1928, when this was first created, it was called Hayden Field. And the Silver Wing Aircraft Company operated out of here. Oddly enough, it's a little hard for us to imagine now, but their hangar was down where the 29th Street Mall is. So they pushed the airplane up the hill every time they wanted to, to go fly. And the Silver Wing Aircraft Company, as I understand it, was one of the first manufacturers of airplanes. I mean, we're only talking a in decade the country. In, the, in the country. Mm -hmm. We're only talking a decade after the Wright brothers. Tim, the airport has played a major role in um, some of the emergency situations we've had here in, in Boulder and Boulder County in the last few years, specifically the flood activity in 2013. Tell us about the role of the airport during September 2013. In September of 2013, of course, you know, uh, the front range got, I think it was 12 inches of rain uh, in a matter of one week. You know, obviously when that amount of rain falls, even on a flat area, the ground can't accommodate it all. So what happened early on, I would say the second day of rain, is the emergency operations center activated our flood disaster program. And the airport has always been a part of that program. It's a co-op plan, so we work very closely with the county especially. And you know, the, the mindset has always been on this 100-year flood, 500-year flood, like the Big Thompson saw. Uh, several decades ago. And this one didn't really fall into that definition because it wasn't a quick, you know, quick rain onset. Event. It was yeah. a very slow event, but it was so much rain. So the the disaster, you know, uh, team assembled and the second night is when they decided they needed to start activating agencies such as the Boulder Airport. And I guess to give you a quick glimpse, the 500-year flood and the 100-year flood, the airport was just going to be a relocation area. So the agencies like fire departments, police departments, were going to stage vehicles at the Boulder Airport because it is on high ground. We are about 50 feet above most of the city. And so we're always going to be a predominantly dry area. But very quickly, they realized that we weren't going to be just doing that. We were going to actually be the disaster location for the entire Boulder City and Boulder County. So this is I, sort of the center of operations? Correct. So I, I got a call from the sheriff, Sheriff Joe Pelly. The operations locations was always planned on being the fire training center, which is located next to the Boulder Reservoir. However, it was starting to flood already on Thursday morning. So they were very concerned about starting to integrate that into a disaster location area for all their decision makers. And then 
you know, a day later getting flooded out of it. So they decided the, the better choice would be to use the Boulder Airport because we are on higher ground. We weren't having any flooding at all at the airport yet. So one of the first things we did was basically try to open up all the buildings that they needed. And originally a, a Type 3 team came in, a FEMA Type 3 team, which is mostly made up of regional assets. So fire departments, rescue departments and stuff from Colorado were brought into Boulder and they handled the entire first day, that, that Thursday. And then that night, they decided to upgrade and bring in a FEMA Type 2 team, which is teams from all over. I mean, we had Utah, we had Oklahoma, and that's when you start seeing a lot more trailers and command posts and tents and dining facilities and showering facilities. And one of the nice things about the airport, similar to the fire training center, is we have a lot of undeveloped land. So we were able to accommodate, you know, those additional trucks and trailers and facilities and and give everyone room to breathe. I recall the Utah Urban Search and Rescue Group was parked right over here mm -hmm. between a rows of hangars. Correct. With trucks and tents. Right. So one of the one of the things that we did, you know, right away was we closed the airport to non-rescue aircraft. A nice benefit of that is we didn't have to worry about people having to get out of their hangars. So we were able to use a lot of the paved areas that were usually taxiways or you know aircraft based for parking or whatever for vehicles exactly yeah. for trailers for supplies for pallets of water for generators all the things that they were going to be bringing in we had a lot of paved surfaces that could quickly accommodate all that and then the grass of course was still fairly dry everyone was pretty amazed just because we're on high ground and good drainage so they were able to still use those for overflow parking for tents, you know, all the all the personnel kind of stuff. And then fairly shortly, it became clear there needed to be a rescue operation in the mountains, Correct. right? By yeah. air. Yes. So how did the airport play into all of that? Well, one of the one of the things that I'll always remember is when I got that call at 2 a.m., the sheriff said, Tim, I think we're all going to be amazed when the sun comes up. And, and sure enough, it, at the devastation, at the damage. Exactly. Because I think it was that night that everything became over capacity. I mean, the soils could no longer absorb the, the water. The reservoirs were starting to top off. And that all happened in the middle of the night. Everything got critical. Exactly. Overnight. Right. Oversaturated. And so when the sun came up on that Thursday morning, they quickly realized roads were no longer there, bridges weren't safe to, to use, and the mountain communities were stranded in, in many, many, many ways. Or there was only one way out, and that was, you know, going up to the peak to peak three highway hours around. Yeah. Exactly. The sheriff basically could not get up the canyon. Correct. And of course, one of the first jobs for a rescue operation is to evaluate the extent. You know, where are services needed? What kind of services are needed? And so during the first day, the governor activated the National Guard. And so we got up a few, I would say about four National Guard helicopters that day. And, and those uh, would have come from Buckley Air Base. In Aurora. And they're all Colorado National Guard, you know, so they're here for missions exactly like this. And they're all trained, you know, they deploy to the Middle East for wars, you know, and, and they serve in the role of being medevac helicopters and whatnot. So the only, the only odd thing for them was, you know, they were doing that right here in their backyard. But they brought up, um, I think it was two Chinooks, two Blackhawks, 
And the Chinooks are the large transport helicopters with the twin propellers. Blackhawks are the medevac helicopters that can accommodate stretchers and, and a small medical team. And then they brought up one Lakota, which is kind of an observation helicopter. For command and control. For command and control. Kind of allocate resources, <clears throat> figure out where people needed help. And it didn't take long for them to realize five helicopters weren't going to be enough. The National Guard lieutenant colonel asked me, how many helicopters could we accommodate at the Boulder Airport? And I told them 12. And so that next morning, we had 12 helicopters here. And that's when they activated the U.S. Army out of Fort Carson. And they brought up the same kind of helicopters, just more of it. Uh, and it enabled the crews to kind of work in shifts. You know, in fact, that next night, they actually flew night missions. Yeah, that would have been Friday night. With night vision goggles. That would have been Friday, September 13th. Right. So Friday the 13th, what do you know? Yeah. So those crews out of Fort Carson had just returned from the, the Gulf War, you know, desert area and had done multiple missions at night. And so they got permission to start the rescue operations that night with night vision goggles and were uh, able to, you know, basically pull people off of the roofs of their houses and tops of cars and in real precarious situations where people may not have lasted through the night. And, and I think that's why they made that decision, even though it was a little bit more hazardous, is that that's what the situation dictated. And so they, that operation was fully rescue. Um, there was no really evacuations or, or supply drop-off or anything. That was, that was critical. And they were flying in the, in the mountains mostly, right, mm -hmm. that, that Friday night? Almost, almost entirely in the mountains, along the rivers and creeks and all the drainage basins where people had houses close to the rivers and now the houses had you know, collapsed and, and the people were not able to make it to safety. So the only thing they had was a tree limb or a house rooftop or something. And, you know, luckily, they're fairly dark areas. So when you go up by night vision goggles, the helicopter crews were quickly able to find, you know, heat sources and things for people. People with, with flashlights is exactly, what they reported. Yeah. Waving them down. And there, was, there were a lot of frantic stories that night. You know, a lot of, um, of people that were scared for their lives and, and didn't know if they were going to last through the night. And, and when they heard the whoop, whoop, whoop of a helicopter, you know, it just opened up all kinds of hope and, and enabled them to, to, to survive. And they were all brought back to the Boulder Airport where there were already Red Cross members and, and medical members and whatnot here to treat them. And, and then the next morning, that was the only night operation, but the next morning they kind of started the phase two, which was the evacuations. Where were the trucks based? There were trucks trying to get into the mountains and get into Jamestown, mm -hmm. or, or into both Jamestown and Lyons. Right. Was that operation coordinated here, from here as well, from the airport? So this is where they lived for several days, you know, about 10 days. So at night... So the trucks were parked here and the crews mm -hmm. were here, and during the daytime when they could see, exactly. they were trying to get those uh, high-clearance trucks into Lyons, for example. Correct. They're called LMTVs. Um, and so they, they can cross, you know, water that most cars can't. Of course, four-wheel drive, you know, big tires. Sure. And so at night, they slept in our hangars. So they slept under airplane wings and, and whatnot. But they were dry and, you know, on hard ground. And, and they had all the amenities that they needed with the, with the rest of the FEMA trailers and whatnot. They showered. They ate here. And then in the morning, they would, uh, you know, get their mission, basically. And it would be different every day. And they would head out, and we wouldn't see them until dinner time. 
so they would take the equipment they needed, the personnel they needed, and they would go to their different communities and bring supplies, you know, obviously bring people out of the communities that they needed and, and were able to get ground transportation out and, and basically did that for a week or so. I'm Richard Kiefer at Boulder Municipal Airport with Tim Head, the airport manager. And then, and then the air crews were the same, right? They were living here. I think they were camped in your office or in this building that we're sitting in, weren't right. they? Well, we, so, we, so, so they were mostly flying during the daytime except for that first Friday mm -hmm. evening. And were they staying here overnight as well? They were. Everybody that needed a place to stay stayed here at the Boulder Airport. So all the commanders, all the support personnel, everybody that wasn't didn't have a different location you know if you lived here in town maybe you could go and, and stay in your own bed but most of these guys were you know from fort carson and, and whatnot and so they weren't flying home to fort no. carson each evening they were staying no. here with their helicopters yeah this this became um there were over a thousand personnel that lived at the boulder airport during the during the flood time and like i said the infrastructure was quickly upgraded so that they had their Food meal facilities in and, and all of that exactly. Okay, and then what the airport did? Not only did we provide all the space that they needed, but we tried to empty out every office we could, every hangar we could, so they could have their big planning meetings, their briefings. They could store supplies, and that you know, within a couple of days, they were bringing in pallets and pallets of supplies. And then some of those supplies were going by truck, some of the supplies were going by helicopter. But we're talking about fuel, generators, food, water, medical supplies. And then they were also transporting personnel that were part of the effort. So engineers to get to locations where they could evaluate the bridge strength and, and roads and, and already start planning the recovery um, you know, afterwards so they could get some of these roads reopened. And uh, some of the, you know, engineers and, and state personnel, that was the only way to get to these locations was by air. By air. So if they needed to get up there and, and condemn houses and, and evaluate water systems and, and bridges and sanitary and so systems and all those things that we kind of take for granted, uh, they would come in and get their flight up in the helicopter and do the work that they needed and then be brought back by helicopter. Because the roads were not really open for several days or a week or Correct. two, really, right? And to some communities, yeah, it was the only way in and out. So the, the role was multiple fold um, and all kinds of different agencies, especially on the ground. Uh, you know, we had uh, animal control officers here that were supporting the, the efforts of all the people that had pets. And we had over a thousand pets who came out with the, with the evacuees, right? Exactly. Yeah. A lot of the mountain communities, you know, those those residents didn't want to leave their pets. How many people so. were rescued by air, and how many pets? Well, I, my understanding is twelve hundred by air uh, people, and then another five hundred by vehicle, and then over a thousand pets. So almost as many pets as people. And I saw a lot of that. There was a lot of dogs and, and getting off of Chinook helicopters here exactly yeah yep. but we also had some really odd animals you know we had chickens and roosters and and I believe a pig somebody told me about so you know in in those cases if somebody says I'm not leaving without my animal um, they did everything they could to accommodate that so what were you doing during this whole time what wasn't I doing? <laughs> um, I mean we're sitting in your office here right. um, I assume you were busy Yes. Yes. Day and night. Um, I did manage to get some sleep, you know, about four hours a night, but I was kind of the focal point of coordination. 
So for, for the airport facility. Exactly. So make when sure people, everybody had what they needed and exactly when they had a question or they needed something or they needed permission for something, um, I was able to accommodate that. So this was a big deal. This was probably the biggest deal to ever happen at Boulder Municipal Airport. Right. What wasn't it? Interesting enough, I've been here for eight and a half years, and we've had the flood, which by far was the largest project, you know, with a thousand people here at the airport and 12 helicopters. But we've had two forest fires that the airport served as the aviation component for. Um, and we've had two presidential visits. So it's been, it seems like it's been busier than most general aviation airports have been. And it's a nice reminder again, that, that the airport is an asset. And so it's here for day-to-day -day use, but it's also here for those occasions where you do have VIP um, visits or you have a, a disaster or a fire or something where we need to, to use that asset. And it's, you know, it's here ready and, and willing. We're talking with Tim Head, manager of the Boulder Municipal Airport, about the role of the airport in emergency operations and uh, presidential visits. When you say presidential visit, you mean Obama's visits during the last presidential campaign, Correct. right? Yep. So he flies in Air Force One to either DIA or Buckley. They send his helicopter out here in advance. Mm -hmm. They fly him from there to Boulder Municipal Airport after securing the airport. Securing this airport means exactly what? I mean, nobody right. can be in the buildings or all operations are shut down or what, what's the impact to the airport? So they, the Secret Service has two options. They can either make the uh, landing a public landing or a non-public landing. And basically what that means is, you know, is the press allowed to be there? Is the public allowed to be there? And sometimes when you see them land, you'll see people with posters and welcome banners. There's a greeting stuff. committee of some kind exactly. or whatever. Yeah. And it really just depends on, you know, how busy his itinerary is and, and the location. And, you know, in this case, he was going to go to CU to go give a speech. And so they didn't make the airport part public. And so what the airport had to do was close to everybody. Um, nobody could move. Nobody could even be on the airport that wasn't part of the Secret Service or the police department. And then in addition, they had to close Independence Road, any, basically any place that you could view the president and, and create a hazard. Because to Independence Road is right along the north boundary, and you can right. actually see the runway from Independence Road. Yeah, it's pretty unobstructed view. Um, <clears throat> so they actually, there's about six houses. They had to vacate those houses. Um, so the residents had to leave? Mm-hmm. They, they had the sheriff's department close the road, you know, on each end so nobody could transit. And, you know, we're only talking about 30 minutes to 45 minutes. And then once the president's motorcade left the airport to go do a speech, they would allow people to come back in. And then when they knew he was coming back, they would, you know, resecure it. And then the airspace is closed. Now that is very regular, even if, you know, even if he's flying into DIA. Boulder normally has airspace restrictions where air traffic control needs to know who every airplane is. So you can't go flying around without being in touch with them and having a flight plan. So that was pretty typical. But the stuff that was a little bit unusual is that we couldn't have any tenants on the airport at all. So that did cause a little bit of, of work on my behalf because we have some, you know, companies that, you know, they're trying to earn a profit and, and they have And they need to fly in a certain schedule. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And um, they had to... They couldn't be here on Friday at all. 
um, when he flew in and, and, and departed. So they had to vacate the building. They had to basically stay home, you know, that day. They could leave their airplane here, but no personnel Correct. could be on, on the Once premises. the building was cleared by the bomb dogs and stuff, nobody could go back in, mm -hmm. period. So they would t put a piece of tape on the door, like evidence tape on the door, and nobody could go in or out. Could you be here? Yes. I and one of my helpers were the only people here on behalf of the airport. Um, everybody else was in uniform of some sort, you know, either Secret Service or military or, you know, police department. Did you meet the president? I didn't get to meet him. But one thing that was interesting, you know, we're sitting in my office right now, and his helicopter landed right outside. Uh, right out the window? Right here? outside my office. Oh. I mean... So he didn't stop by and say Stone's hello? throw. Um, what, what the Secret Service told me was uh, when, he, when he has a location like this, they have to be ready for anything and everything. So what they did is they basically used, they prepared my office for his use. So they brought in secured telephone lines. They had everything, the bathroom, everything. So in case the president needed to go to the bathroom, in case the president needed to make a phone call, in case the president needed to talk about something with somebody, they had to make sure that the building was secured, that there was no wireless running at the time. I mean, it was a very interesting thing to see because the Secret Service has a whole team, a whole communications team that comes in and turns things off and then brings in the things that the president needs. And, you know, and, and as we know, when 9-11 happened, George Bush was in elementary school talking to elementary kids. And so they always have to be ready. They just don't know when the president's going to have a, an emergency like that. And in that case, he would have used my office, which would have been such a privilege, of course. But in this case, everything went flawlessly and he basically went right into his motorcade and went to see you. He was on a fairly tight schedule too, so he didn't have a lot of time. So they pre-staged the car, they bring the car, he gets mm -hmm. in the car and and then they reversed that whole process when he left. They came back here, Correct. got on the helicopter, went back to the yep. Air, to Air Force One. Yep. But yeah, one thing that's kind of impressive is, you know, they fly in his his motorcade. You know, and Yeah, they course, fly the car. They fly mm -hmm. two cars. Exactly. So um, a lot of the Suburbans and the, the Beast, which is what his vehicle's called, and the Suburbans and just everything that he needs, basically. And, of course, all the personnel, you know, all the anti-terrorism teams and the SWAT snipers and everything else, they all come in. There was a helicopter in the air over CU, I think, or in mm -hmm. the, over Boulder while he was at the CU campus. Correct. Did that fly out of here as well? That did, and that's actually the same Fort Carson crew that we saw during the flood in September of 2013. So once again, when, when something like the president moves, you basically use all the resources that are available. So public use airports like Boulder Airport, Army, National Guard, police departments, everything like that. And so he, his responsibility was to intercept any airplane that might have invaded the, the airspace. airspace. Exactly. Mm -hmm. and, and to identify it, determine if it was a threat, and it did. It was armed, so it was able to take care of a threat if there was one. So it it basically circled. We did have one airplane that entered over Longmont that, for some reason, didn't know about it, and they had to go intercept it and basically turn it back. Mm -hmm. So it was you know it was a non-lethal <laughs> interdiction. Of course, sure. they were able to get the pilot's attention and have them land, and the police contacted them. So it must have been hundreds of of Secret Service people who mm -hmm. were around here during that during that event. It was. It would be hard to put a number on it. It's Personnel, probably a secret number. Yeah. And some of them are uniform, some of them aren't. 
So you were busy. You, you were yeah. busy. <laughs> oh, my whole calendar yeah. got erased got, for that got, week. Got rearranged. Yeah. yeah. And Secret so, Service was my calendar that week. Okay. Well, Tim Head, uh, manager of the Boulder Municipal Airport, thanks a lot for talking with us. You bet. So glad to have you here. For KGNU at Boulder Municipal Airport, I'm Richard Kiefer.